0: Hello there and a very happy new year to you you're very welcome to a special look back to some of our best guests from 2022 we'll hear from actor Brian Cox the late Vicky Phelan director John Borman and Patrick Keelty among others But first, the critically acclaimed Booker Prize winning author Anne Enright spoke with me just before she received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the On Irish Book Awards. We chatted about the long road to success and how she tells her students that the first 12 years trying to become a writer are the worst.
1: You basically take a vow of poverty and difficulty and you sit at your desk and you sweat it out, but there's a kind of community of dedication to it one way or the other. So it isn't easy when you're starting out but it actually as I go on I find each one easier in a different way you get more technically adept you know what what you know is that you're going to hit a wall and you just say okay I'll do something else for a while and the book will come back to me you get more confidence about the whole kind of process of it
0: and listen to go back a little Anne. but i mean you grew up i think the youngest of five didn't you a family of five children uh, yes indeed so does that yes. mean it was difficult to have your voice heard or were you spoiled rotten or both
1: well i mean you'd have to ask them wouldn't you <laughs> <laughs> i think i'm only getting this lifetime achievement award to, to make them all feel old do you know <laughs> what i mean that's the great thing about being the youngest I suppose you stick your elbows out. We had a fairly lively dinner table and you had to fight for your space and a a bit of a jostle going on there with five siblings. And I don't know, some people think that they're heard or not heard independent of whether that's true. People sometimes hear you but don't agree with you. As I say to one of my children who says, you're not listening to me. I say, no, I am listening. I'm just not agreeing with you. It's a different thing. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I suppose though... In a busy household, there was always the seclusion and the solitude of the book. So you could be in a room, we'd all be doing our homework together in the same room. And, you know, you could find your own personal space in the book, in the pages of a book. You'd sit there and get lost. And that was a little kind of circle for yourself.
0: Is it true you'd read all of the children's section in your local library by the age of seven and Ulysses by the age of 14?
1: (laughs) Is this true? I had, actually. I did, it is actually true. I was probably too embarrassed to admit to these precocities until recently. Yeah, know, I, I, there was a lovely upstairs room in Rathmines Library and I used to go up there before my bus and I read everything and just ran out of books really there. And I, I begged them for an adult ticket, which they finally gave me, And I, but they gave me no help or assistance. I sort of wandered through these shelves with these slightly smiling librarians going off you go now, see what you want in there. And I couldn't figure it out. So there was a kind of mystery and attraction in, in that library space. But you yeah, know, I also read Ulysses early, but I read other things early as well.
0: You left school at 16. I mean, you did your leaving search so young at 16. And then you got an international scholarship that took you to a school in Canada for two years. How did that come about? And, and did you enjoy that time?
1: Well, it just came about really simply because I was too young to go to university or barely old enough to go to university. So I was supposed to go off an au pair in Germany for a year. That was the kind of career plan at that time. And then two teachers in Louis in Rathmines pointed out this ad in the back of the Irish Times, which was for a United World College in Canada. So they did the interviews in Trinity College, Dublin. And I got the scholarship. I mean, there were two scholarships a year from Ireland. And I went off on a transatlantic jet to Canada where I stayed for two years. And had I I don't know if it was the best time of my life, but it was a really, really interesting, useful and expansive time. Yeah.
0: And when you came back to Ireland, Anne, you know, did that Canadian experience, did it make you see Ireland through different eyes even?
1: Yeah, no, coming home was hard, actually. Coming home to a place that had not changed as much as I had changed. Mm. When you have that kind of hothouse growth, which in late teenage years is a great time to, to for something like that to happen. So I had sort of really shifted in my sensibilities. And I was coming back to people who are changing more slowly than I had been. So that that had its downside, really, I, I trying to fit back into that space. Yeah. And actually, I write about that a lot. I write about people coming back to Ireland, you know, in the Green yeah. Road, you have all these siblings coming back, trying to fit back into their childhood house uh, uh, and not knowing each other as well as they used to, being utterly familiar with people, but not knowing what their life is like now.
0: Yeah, really interesting. Now, you went to Trinity, I did. You met your husband there. Tell us about the first time what he wrote down when (laughs) he came across
1: you. Oh, stop, you're too well researched, Mary. (laughs) I did an audition in my first month in Trinity. There was a thing called the Freshers Co-op and the Freshers are the first years in Trinity. That's what they're called. And it was a cooperative play that we'd put on together. And the director was a guy called Martin Murphy. And I did an audition for a a kind of mad housewife called Mrs. Brandywine. (laughs) And apparently what he put down on the paper when he saw me was one word and that word was bingo. So bingo with maybe an exclamation mark. Sadly, we don't have that piece of paper anymore. But you're still married. Uh, We are still married. Yes, we are. Yes. No, we say it every day to each other. We say bingo. That's what we say when we wake up. Bingo. (laughs) Yeah, no, that was uh, 40 years ago.
0: He's also always anything I've read, been very supportive, hasn't he, of your career, which is important if you're to be a success and a successful writer.
1: I I look at at, at young women in particular, and they're planning on how it's going to be. And they're going to say, how am I going to maybe plan a family and keep working? How am I going to be creative in one way or another? And I I don't say the thing that's on my mind, which is what you need is you need to get somebody in your life who isn't jealous of your creative life. Okay. Mm. I I don't know how to expand on that, but there is a kind of dynamic which I have observed where men in particular are not hugely pleased about their wives going off and having this elaborate sort of other life or going out and being successful in the world. Um, It seems to me that if you can, you need a big man who's able to manage all of those emotions or manage all of those possessions and dispossessions and let you just get on with it without interference, you know.
0: And interestingly, after Trinity, you turned to acting first, didn't you, Anne, rather than writing? I mean, was that initially, do you think, where your greatest interest
1: lay? Well, I ran out of interest fairly fast in the acting thing. I was working more or less professionally for about a year after college. Uh, Even then, I was running the statistics saying, actually, the one out of nine parts are are for women, and 95% of actors are unemployed and all the rest of it. I just couldn't see it. I couldn't see it necessarily working for me. I wasn't hugely interested in saying other people's words. And I was endlessly, not endlessly, but the few auditions I got were for things like the maid. I was always, <laughs> I, I didn't have the kind of face, right, for the leading young, the, the the girlfriend. So I was always going to be playing maids or comic parts or whatever. I thought there's more. There was a day in that year where I had two phone calls. Gary Hines rang me up personally and said, would I like a part in an upcoming production of Dracula in Galway? And that was, you know, an amazing breakthrough mm-hmm. for me. And somebody from RTE rang and said, would I like to work on a pilot for a show? So I did. There was one day when my life forked and I said, OK, I'm going to take the writing gig. And That's so there interesting. it was, yeah, for good or ill.
0: Yeah, the way life... I made... The right choice. I made the right choice. <laughs> the incomparable Anne Right there. Well, Scottish actor Brian Cox is known right now for playing one of the biggest roles on TV at the moment, starring as media mogul Logan Roy in HBO's Succession. When we chatted earlier in the year, he told me about his family's Irish background, his theatre work, and how he got the role of Dr Hannibal Lecter in the first film featuring the fictional serial killer in Manhunter.
2: Well, you know, they talk about Scotch Irish. You know, they always go on about, oh, he's scots Irish, but they forget about Irish Scots. There's so many Irish Scots. My my father's family came from a place called Largy, just outside Enniskillen in, in the Northern Ireland. They had. I actually found the farm where they all came from, and there was about thirteen of them. And of course, they could never be supported the whole family, so they were itinerant workers. They'd go to Scotland and do the fruit and the potatoes and do the picking and all that. My great-grandfather, who was Bernard Cox, and he married a woman called Bridget Boylan, and, and uh, they came to Dundee to work. Well, actually, he came as an adjunct because it was mainly the women. In my, my hometown in Dundee, uh, it was roughly 80% of the working population were women uh, because they could spin and they could weave, and that was their skill, that was what was called upon so my great-grandparents uh they emigrated to dundee and they were very well served it was a it was a much better place to end up than glasgow which was much rougher where the mccans which is my mother's family ended up my mother's paternal family was um great-grandfather was from Derry, and my great-grandmother was margaret mcguire and she was from um uh she was from donegal so the the irish thing is very strong and of course we were all catholics as well and then we lived in these little ghettos in Dundee, you know, and that people were workers. They did the most amazing job, the women. And the men were known as house husbands, the more <laughs> affectionately called kettle boilers, kept the kettle boiling. And, they, and these are men that had been farmers. And, of course, the famine had killed everything for them. And there was a sort of, as we know, it was a sort of, it was a kind of genocidal act, really, and um, what happened was that they escaped, they got away, and they went they went east as opposed to going west, where everybody went to America for a better life and a, a much greater freedom. My family went east to to work in the mills.
0: We're definitely claiming you as Irish then, Brian. And then, look, you describe your parents in your book. Charles and Marianne, I think, were their names as...
2: Yeah, Marianne or, or Molly. My mum was known as Molly, but her real name was... She was Marianne McCann. You can't get a more Irish name
0: like that. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly, I found, you know, very moving. You describe your parents as two very tragic figures in your life. Can, would you mind telling us a little about both of them? Your dad first, maybe?
2: Well, my dad was... Uh, an extraordinary guy. He was the youngest of 13 children. His mothers, again, were Irish Catholics. He was taken care of. I mean, his eldest sister was his sister Anne, and she was something like 22 years older than him. And uh, she'd lost her husband in the First World War, and as a result, she had a tiny pension. Now, my dad worked in the mills initially. He was a bachelor, which is a guy who moves all the heavy stuff, and, you know, and he was, that was his job. But my my auntie Anne, she had a shop, a little shop. And my dad, the shop was for him. But it was initially my mother, <clears throat> before she got pregnant, who was in the shop because he didn't want to give up his job. He, you know, all his friends and everything. And then finally he made the move, and he was very successful. He was a very he was a grocer and. Uh, he had a great shop but he was also an extraordinarily giving man I mean he would work from 5 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night in the shop and then he would go and help some old couple decorate their their flat that was the kind of man he was He's, that was my problem with fatherhood was with him because he was such a mythic father and such a good man he was a very hard act to follow that's, that's the background you know but they were both and my mother was really skilled she was a you know, her, her writings, my mother was illegitimate, as it turned out, and uh, this was not known. But my her younger sister was ashamed of the fact that this was a family secret. And my mother had written about this when she was, you know, really after my father died, and she she had these writings. And after she died, they discovered these writings, and my aunt threw her writings in the fire and burnt them which I never forgave. I didn't know about this until much later, but I never forgave my aunt for doing that because this was this was my mother's passion. She could write.
0: Before, obviously, Logan Roy, and a lot of young people might only know you primarily for that. But of course, you had this stellar theatre career. Was Titus Andronicus, for you, was that one of your finest theatre roles?
2: Yeah, yeah, it probably was. But Titus was the most extraordinary thing ever. Working with the great director, Deborah, Deborah Warner. It was her first big, you know, stuff, you know. Well, actually, I befriended the actor, Irish-American actor, Brian Denny. and Brian came to see me in the show. And I, I kept, he kept saying, you were mesmerising, you're mesmerising.
0: The role in Succession, how did it come about? Did you know it was going to be a big hit? And is it true initially you thought it was going to be you were only going to be in it for a first season originally, that you were going to be a character for one season.
2: Well, I, I think that was an original idea. I think that idea may have gone by the time I came on the scene, but it was what my manager in, back in the States said to me. He said, look, I think this is, this is just a one-season part and uh, there'll be 10 episodes. And I went, well, I know it. I'm interested, you know, because I'm always ready to work, you know. So... I they arranged a phone call. And um, I spoke to Jesse Armstrong, our genius, genius creator, and, and his formidable team, but it was just Jesse at that point, he didn't have these extraordinary writers who came on board eventually. And, and Adam McKay, and Adam McKay was the producer. And, uh, and Adam McKay had he'd been the head writer and Saturday Night Live. So there was always this comic sense in the in the scripts. So and it was the pitch, you know, and I just, when I heard the pitch, I knew, I kind of knew instinctively this this would be a winner because this was something, because also it's a, you know, it's a satire of really this, and we live in this time of these families who've got, as my mother would say, more money than sense.
0: The always entertaining Brian Cox. We'll be back after this.
3: Tweet at Miriam O'Call.
0: You're welcome back. Well, in November, we lost cervical cancer campaigner Vicky Phelan. Without her, people may never have learned of the cervical check controversy. I spoke to her back in January when a portrait of Vicky was unveiled in her hometown of Mooncoin, along with the artist who painted it, Vincent Devine and Vicky's friend, David Brennan, who purchased it. And I asked her if she enjoyed the unveiling of her painting.
4: Oh, listen, absolutely. I mean... I, I suppose my big worry, Miriam, was that I wouldn't be there to unveil it. And that was always the back of my mind, particularly as I was getting, you know, iller um, when I came home from America. So, you know, I was really adamant that I wanted to get get out and have it done on Sunday because, you know, if we'd put it off again, I don't know, you know, when I'd be well enough to go down again. So that was the reality really on Sunday. So for me, it was very important to do it at home in Munkhain on Sunday uh, in front of, all of my family and friends and, and the people of Moncoyne.
0: And I gather you were initially, Vicky, you were a little unsure, weren't you, about having your portrait painted?
4: Oh, I was, because I suppose when it was explained to me at first, um, I had this idea of this very posed portrait, you know, very stuffy, kind of, you know, like you'd see the royals or, mm. you know, dressed very nicely, kind of sitting with a straight and about folded hands. That's, that's what I had in my head, I suppose. <laughs> and I just thought, that's not me, you know. But then... When I was brought up to the studio, to Vincent's studio, to see some of his paintings, I realised very quickly that that's not the type of portrait he it does.
0: It's really stunning. Vincent, how, first of all, how did the painting of Vicky come about? Did you approach her? Did she approach you? How did it come about? So
5: the the founder of Heroes Ed, Mary Leahy, had, uh, she's a previous client of mine, and um, they were speaking about how to help Vicky secure her legacy and what how do you secure a legacy and stuff like that so i, I mean what better way than usually a book and a painting so what i did was i said if vicky is open to it because vicky was on the the board of hero aid i had said if vicky's open to it i'd love to paint her uh, because my my portraits are really like research intensive so i would kind of have to really get into vicky's mind and you know so i said I'd love to paint. And I just thought, God, the timing is perfect here for me to tell the feeling story. And, you know, what an honour it was to do it. You know, it was a big, big, big honour, you know.
0: And I know Vicky has said you've captured her likeness unbelievably well. But more importantly, you told her story. And, you know, there's so much truth in that saying, Vincent, a picture paints a thousand words. How difficult was it, though, for you to achieve that? And how much responsibility did you feel achieving that?
5: Well, when Vicky graciously agreed to, to say for the portrait, that, that, was, that was great. And I, I said, God, this is, a, this is great because somebody finally has given me the responsibility and trust. And then afterwards, when I had time to protest with Miriam, <laughs> um, I kind of thought, OK, Vincent, you're dealing with uh, the Feelings, the Kelly's, you're dealing with everybody in Mooncoin. You have to represent all the women of the whole country, uh, anyone going through cancer, anyone who isn't going through cancer, all the husbands, wives. And I kind of had a moment with partner, Lynn, and I said, Lynn, I don't know if I can do this. And she went, why? I said, because this is huge. This is a huge responsibility. And even, even from anybody coming into my studio for coffee who tells me their story, it's a big responsibility when somebody hands you their life story and says, can you please do something with this that will honour everything I've been through? And, you know, I mean, when we were in Mooncoin on Sunday, for me to sit or stand in front of Vicky and for her eyes to light up the way they lit up, and not only that, in front of her own painting of herself and her story, that, that that that's what nearly got me on, on uh Sunday. That's when I nearly went, you know. And I don't know if Vicky you know, but that was kinda when I kinda said, Okay, you know, I, I've done it, I've I've done her proud and that's really all I set out to do with in the in first place. We wanted to raise money and I wanted to make sure that I'd done Vicky and her story proud because it's quite a story, you know.
0: Did you notice that, Vicky, as Vincent said there, that moment?
4: Yeah, I did. I think we both had a bit of a moment there towards the end and um even though we weren't supposed to hug, I don't think there's anything we could do but hug at that stage. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but yeah, uh, yeah, there was definitely a lot of um, a lot of emotions running very high on Sunday. I think because it's been a long time coming, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I think Vincent and David were both conscious of the fact that I am quite ill at the moment. So you know, it's just it was important to have to have the day on Sunday and to mark that occasion.
0: And I know, Vicky, as I think everyone in the country feels they know you now, that, you know, you. did you have a say in how it was painted and what was painted?
4: Uh, yeah, I, oh, I did. Absolutely. I mean, Vincent consulted me pretty much all the way um, to see was I OK with them. You know, he wanted to paint the, the whole picture, the whole three different, um, uh, you know, the triptych in Doombeg. But they would have a different story in each one. Um, but it was all uh, based on the sand on the beach in Doombeg and I was really happy with that. And then the back of the kind of the color, the main color in the painting, then is blue, blue and blues and reds, really, you know. And uh, yeah, I I thought that was, would work very well with with everything that you know was going to be told in 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 three different paintings. So, yeah, Vincent would have consulted me all the way through, really, you know, and there was a couple of ideas that I had that went into it as well. Um, So, yeah, it was definitely a consultation the whole way through.
0: It's absolutely beautiful. And as people are listening to us now, if they want to look at it, they can look at it at com. David, it's such a lovely story. I know the family and Vicky were thrilled that you purchased Vicky's portrait, but you're you're an almost part of the family, aren't you? Tell us about yourself. Yeah,
6: well... Uh, Miriam, I grew up uh, next door, well, pretty much next door to Vicky. Um, I hung around with her brother since, uh, uh, since I was a child. So I was pretty much in the Kellys' household <laughs> every day for donkey's years. So uh, Vicky was, and is, I suppose, uh, you know, almost like a sister. In fact, at one stage I lived in the house. So, um, yeah, the, the Kellys have been very good to me. And, uh, you know, the, the, there was always a, a personal uh, connection. You know, when we first saw the portrait, I mean, when we saw the portrait, we, like how Vincent has just described, you know, for anybody that hasn't seen it, when you see it and when you know the background of Vicky, then you realise that this is not just a painting. And when we saw it, my, my wife had turned to me and we both agreed, you know, we have to do whatever we can to make sure that that painting comes to mankind, you know.
0: And David... You know, the auction itself was that tricky. And had you told Vicky you were going to bid for her portrait?
6: Uh, I did, yeah, about ten minutes beforehand. I don't know. It was funny because um, I hadn't said much to anybody except my wife. And to be honest, it's kind of we almost forgot about it uh, until the day, or or at least I selected to forget about it. But um. Vicky had texted me that morning um, about something completely different, but we had been talking about the painting. Um, unknown to Vicky, I was, after registering, to bid on it, and Vicky had invited uh, myself and Alicia, my wife, down to Listole for whoever had bought the painting to for it to be displayed in Listole in Billy Keane's pub. So mm. that was great, but uh, yeah, I, I decided then, okay... Uh, I better let her know um, that I'm bidding on the painting. So I let her know a few minutes beforehand. I got this big screaming text from her, oh, Jesus
4: Christ, don't spend too much money.
6: (laughs) (laughs) How did
0: you feel, Vicky, when David told you he was going to bid for it?
4: Oh, my God, I was in shock, to be quite honest. I really wasn't expecting it uh, at all. It kind of came out of left field because I knew it was going to go for, you know, thousands and I thought oh I mean look I know David is a successful businessman but at the same time I just thought this is a lot of money to be spending on a painting so you know at the same time I thought well if he's willing to to bid on it it must mean an awful lot to him and it really really took me aback you know I I was totally and utterly emotional because of course at that stage I was on my own over in America when all this was going on.
0: Final question Vicky, how much does it mean for you as we close this that this portrait now exists of you.
4: Oh, it just, it means the world to me. You know, I really wanted to do the book. I'd never envisaged doing a painting mm. until I was approached about it. Um, but I think the painting is something that will live on forever. And I think it's something that my parents in particular are definitely probably most proud of. And the fact that it's been, you know, homed in Monkheim in, in Davy's house is amazing. Do you know what I mean? So if mum and dad ever wanted to go up and have a look at it, I know Davy would have no problem with uh, Absolutely, like, yeah. in. Yeah. Exactly. So like it's fantastic, but it's also fantastic that Davy has a, a vision for the painting that it will go to schools and colleges and try and educate people and raise awareness. So that's great.
0: The much missed Vicky Phelan speaking to me last January. Well, back in May, I was joined by two people whose lives were changed forever in a split second almost four years ago when Kieran Walsh's bicycle was in a collision with a car as he cycled home from work, the accident leaving him paralysed from the waist down. His story, however, and that of his wife Orla, is one of courage and bravery. Orla began by describing how the night of the accident began for her.
7: Kieran would have punctures. Um, something might, you know, but he delayed at work, and you know, so I wasn't that concerned. I was actually delighted because my gut tests, and we flew down to the shops because I said he's delayed now. Came back up with a roast chicken, um, so um, when the phone call came through, um, it was his phone, and I remember looking at the phone, going, "Oh great," um, and answering it, and it wasn't his voice, and knowing immediately. That he'd had an accident because a man's voice on your husband's phone asking, you, are, are you his wife? Um, so I actually asked him immediately. I, I just said, is he dead? Yeah. <laughs> I was just so shocked because I just felt he was quite quiet when he spoke to me as well. And I felt, you know, it wasn't like, oh, my God, your your husband's broken his leg mm-hmm. or something. And I said, um, how badly injured is he? And he said, well, he is Badly injured, and I was like, "Is there blood?" Like I was, and he was like, "Yeah." I said, "Where's the blood coming from?" It was like just jarring, you know. So that was the first thing that we'd heard. What do you remember, Kieran?
8: Um, Tell me about that day. Yeah, no, I remember everything. I'd been on a a business trip the week before to Boston, and uh, so I, whatever was cycling, just to it's like a detox i guess anyway so a cycling home um and i was in the bike path and a car was turning right and pulled across me i hit the brakes went over the handlebar and thank god i had a helmet on um orla had it bought me a bike a few weeks previously so the brakes were were highly tuned i hit the brakes went over the handlebar hit the car straight on with my head um and uh, basically was conscious for the whole thing Um slid down the, the side of the car then um, broke 10 ribs, of my sternum and my spine obviously as well um and uh, the helmet smashed, went into my uh, head um, and look, as I said, thank God I had it on because God knows what, what could have happened uh, if I didn't have it on. Whatever, I was lying on the ground and as it happened, the, the first two people who came across me were first responders. One was on, on a day off and the other was on, on sick leave and they came over and you know like you see on, on the, all the medical programs can you feel this, can you feel this so they were feeling you know my legs and of course I couldn't feel anything um, and uh, they got as far as, as, as my, my chest I basically have no feeling for my uh, chest down um, and I sort of knew at that stage that that was there. That this was obviously very serious, and as Orla said, somebody took my phone. I I asked him to ring my my wife.
0: Meanwhile, Orla, you headed off to the hospital to move
8: yeah.
7: Up. So um, uh, I think a guard rang me again. A, a lady guard and a and guard. She anyway, she rang and she said that they were going to you were going to go to Vincent's. So I rang my brother and told him. That you know, Kieran had had an accident, so he came with us, and we arrived in Vincent's, and we were way ahead of him. Um, arrived in, and they said yes, there will be an ambulance coming in, and we waited in the A and We we'd stand outside and we'd see the ambulances come in, and about four came in, and every single one of them were bike accidents, but everyone walked or came out in a in a in a wheelie chair and were chatting, and so as each one came in, it was like okay, you know. This could be fine. And then finally you arrived and my brother went out and he went into the ambulance and had a chat with you and came out and he said, he's, he, you can go in and see him. They said, you can just go into the ambulance and say hello to him before they bring him in. And I went in and you were uh, like, you were in such a bad way. And they had the big red cushions around your head. There was your your head was pointed to remember because mm-hmm. it was all swollen and you had a neck brace on. And you just looked at me and said, I can't I can't feel anything
0: after those weeks when you were very ill. And then you were, I suppose, recovering in terms of not being that ill anymore, but then realising that you weren't going to walk. Did you feel you had to stay positive for or like it? it, And then in your quiet moments, is that when they're very dark moments initially or not when you're so did you you get upset?
8: No, I, I, I don't think I did. I think it was um, uh, you you very dark humor, um, mm. really dark humor um, was probably the one sort of constant in it. And Orla was brilliant. So when I was going through that, the, the let's say those three weeks, they kept trying to throw her out and uh, of the room. And I was uh, whatever wanted her to stay there. Um, and it, it you know I remember looking at the clock. And it would go, you know, literally five seconds felt like an hour. It was horrific. Um. After that, once, you know, you start coming around, as you say, then, you know, even after the realisation that you wouldn't walk again, you're you're looking forward to the next stage, which is to go to the NRH. Um, and... uh People are coming in. I, I had a huge amount of like a, a massive groundswell of support from family and friends.
0: So you went to the NRH, didn't you?
8: Yeah, I went to, to, to uh, Vincent's for, for a good few weeks in a holding pattern until there was a place in the NRH. And then we went to the NRH.
0: And you were explaining to me before we came in there. it's it's an amazing place really, isn't it? But like yeah. a lot of the guys were there were saying, you're the lucky one. Explain that. Yeah.
8: On. So there was uh, people who have you know you you think of a spinal injury and and they're all the 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 same but obviously the higher up then the more um loss of 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 functions you have so it again very dark humour there was people in there who those uh Declan, who was in the, the bed next door to me, you know, was higher up and therefore had more challenges than he used to. Whatever the joke was, like the Monty Python scene, sure. <laughs> that's only a flesh wound, you know. <laughs> so um, you, you, you have to, you know, you're all going through physio together. There's a great camaraderie.
0: But he's an amazing guy because tell us the story. Do you remember initially he basically said you should leave him. Oh, yeah. Because he was being so selfless, wasn't he? Oh,
7: completely. Because it was the night of the accident and he'd been moved from uh, Vincent's into the matter where he was going to have his operation and they'd put him up on the fifth floor and we're waiting for the surgeon's about four in the morning. And uh, a doctor came in to do a pre-exam before he went out of surgery and he was running a pin down his body. And really at that stage, we were kind of in our heads, we were like, you know, once you have the surgery, then we'll know more. And, you know, this is not what we think it is, and he ran his 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 pin down you, yeah. and then he just looked up, and we said, you know, so you know he'll he'll walk again, won't he? Once once he's, and he said, to, oh no, actually, he said hey, the the break is bad enough to know. He said we're we're really just going to put them back together, and the two of us just stood there, and you just went, no, um, I want you to walk out of this room, not look back, and take the girls, and I I'm no use to you now, like I'm no like I have nothing I can do for you, so you should walk away, you should walk away now. So it was. Sorry. Anyway, sorry. Oh, no, no. so it's funny because we, don't talk, about, yeah, we no. don't talk about the accident that much no, because my... we're always focused for it, you know. Yeah, and, and rightly sorry. so. Yeah, no,
0: like... no, but I mean, it's a tribute to the love bond between the pair of you mm-hmm. and how strong your marriage was, isn't it? That That you are so happy.
8: Yeah no as i said at least looking forward we've an awful lot to, to look forward to. Yeah. We still have we still laugh um and and have to crack and sit down and have pizza with the family and mm. whatever and all those things you know so we're we're blessed in in so many ways oh, so i are. think we have to to look at the good things in our lives. The truly remarkable
0: Karen and Orla Walsh. Comedian Patrick Keelty joined me to discuss his vision for the future of our island after he had addressed the Shared Island Forum. Born and reared in County Down, aged only 16, his dad was shot and killed by loyalist paramilitaries during the Troubles. He began by describing what had been an idyllic childhood in Dundrum and County Down.
9: Yeah, I mean, this is the weird thing about it. I think... Recently, uh, I was lucky enough, Kenneth Branagh asked me would I host the Belfast premiere in Belfast. And at the heart of that is really the idea there's such a fine line between things being fantastically ordinary and things changing drastically. And so to grow up in Dundrum County Down. You're looking out at the Mourne Mountains. You have four miles of beaches. You've got the Gaelic pitch at one end. You've got the cricket pitch at the other end. We had a de Courcy castle in, you know, in the back garden that we used to play in. And it kind of was amazing. Like, looking back on it now, and you're trying to rear lads in London, and Dundrum was a pretty idyllic place. And I think it was only really by osmosis that you suddenly sort of pick up little bits and pieces. I mean, Dundrum, County Down, population in the late 70s, early 80s, 500. 150 kids, two primary schools. Move along there, madam. Nothing to see. (laughs) Nothing, Nothing ordinary here. So, you know, essentially you're separated by religion. You're taught how to be British if you go to one school. You're taught how to be Irish if you go to another school. It's only processing it now and looking back that you realise that this wasn't ordinary so oh that's the army and that's a checkpoint and you know your ma's going shopping and you know we're driving into Downpatrick and there's a soldier you know pointing the gun out you know off, the, uh, off his off his wagon and then I suppose realising that society was different and extraordinary but never expecting that that is going to come home to your door mm. So everything was a news story. Everything was something that was happening to somebody else. I mean, most of the trouble was in Belfast. Mm -hmm. So if you were in a little village where no one had been killed, no one had been attacked, the idea that that knock on the door was going to come to your house, that the police and the parish priest were going to be talking to your mother, Mm -hmm. that your dad's best friend was going to be coming into school you know, I was putting up posters for Comic Relief. I thought I was in trouble for putting up the posters. And to see my dad's best friend, Brian Cunningham, just sitting there visibly shaken, And that slow motion of, you better sit down. It was one of those lines that you kind of hear in movies. <laughs> you know, the headmaster said, Patrick, I think you better sit down. And you're going, well, what's this about? And your dad's been shot. And I remember instinctively, it was just like, playing tennis, your dad's been shot. Is he dead? Yes. Just that bap, bap, bap. And that short conversation kind of completely changing an idyllic life into something completely different.
0: Why was your father targeted? I even hate asking that question Mm. in a weird way, because it sounds like, oh, there must have been some reason. But why was your dad targeted?
9: Do I fully know the answer to that? Probably not. Mm. There was a lot of tit for tat going on up there at the time. There was a prominent Protestant that was killed in a neighbouring village. Uh, My dad was the chairman of the GEA club, local employer. Subsequently, I found out that because he was a building contractor in Belfast and he was operating in an area where there was protection money and all of these things. And... You slowly but surely start to piece things together. And I did a show, must have been seven or eight years ago. And a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, I thought the show was great. And I said, oh, thanks very much. And she said, uh, my husband would, would love to have a chat with you. And I'm thinking, oh God, what's this about? <laughs> and she said, my husband knows your dad. All right, my you knew, knew your dad. Went to meet him. And it turned out that my dad um, had decided to give evidence in a trial against Loyalist paramilitaries for protection money. And there was a journalist in England, Roger Cook, who did the Cook Report, yeah. who had come in and he had actually done a sting operation on these guys. And my dad was going to give evidence in that trial. And this man said, I was going to give evidence with your dad. And, uh, and the trial collapsed. And so the minute the trial collapsed, I think was because they weren't allowed to give their evidence anonymously. So the idea of being behind a screen, the judge threw that notion out. And I'm sitting there thinking, "Okay, wow, all right. So the perfect storm of a Catholic businessman who didn't want to pay his protection money was going to take on these loyalist paramilitaries. The idea that there was a tit-for-tat murder down the road. He was the prominent Catholic Mm. in the nearest village. There was lots of reasons, shall we say, But ultimately, like so many people up there,
0: I suppose, I don't know, an innocent victim. But you're remarkably not bitter. I mean, just interviewing people down the decades as I have who somebody like their father has been shot and some of them did go into paramilitary organisations because they could not get over. They were so angry. Which, you know, I understand that anger, but how did you manage not to be better.
9: I don't really know. I think there's certain clichés that we have. I think cycle of violence is one. Oh, geez, there's a cycle of violence and it's bad people doing people. Well, what's that cycle of violence caused by? It's normally caused by a cycle of hurt and a cycle of pain. Mm-hmm. And when one of the things that myself and... All my family felt was, number one, we don't want anyone to
0: go through what we went through. Patrick Healty joining me in April of last year. Well, they lined up to pay tribute to the five-time Oscar-nominated director, John Borman, who has lived in Ireland for over 53 years. Credited with bringing a film industry to Ireland, he was calling time on the Wicklow countryside and his much-loved home in Animo. U2's manager Paul McGuinness, James Morrissey of Cladder Records and even Brendan Gleeson calling in from the set of a movie to say thanks to John, who spoke about how he came to Ireland
10: by accident in 1969. I came here in 1969 to do the post-production of a film of Leo the Last. And um, I came to Ardmore because there was nothing available in, in in London. And so I came here by accident, really. And then <laughs> uh, it was a beautiful summer. And while we worked on the post-production of Leo the Last, we discovered the beauty of Wicklow. I felt we all f- fell in love with Wicklow, mountains, lakes. And um, so... I've been working, living, and working in uh, Hollywood, and uh, I I didn't want to go back to England because it'd be had been be, 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 be very negative. Going to America was it was wonderful because was, things were positive. It It's easy to get things done, mm. but I didn't want to bring my kids up there, so you know, I was in a quandary really. But I, so I decided. Well,
0: stay here then. You were, of course, born in 1933. So I think you were a child of the Blitz, John. And is it true that you were much more terrified of school than you were of the war and and that the bomb sites were actually the perfect playground for you as a child?
10: (laughs) So I was seven when the war started, 12 when it ended. And um, I made the film Hope and Glory, which is about my childhood in the bidets, and uh, it was there were sc- scary moments all right but for the most part it was a wonderful playground for children the bomb sites and things we had a, a rather wonderful time finding we all, all had to, collections of shrapnel <laughs> and uh, so we were delighted when uh, a german bomb had fallen and broken into shrapnel and went out and collected uh, bits from it.
0: How did you get your break in film, John? How did you get into movies? I know you used to work in the BBC for a while, didn't you?
10: I did, yeah. Well, I, I, I was... My whole career just grew naturally. I was at the BBC and just at the start of BBC Two and... Uh, Hugh Weldon was running a BBC, and I did. I was making documentary films and so forth. And he asked me, he said, "Do something. I want you to do something uh, original for BBC too. And that's when I did this. This young young series about a young young couple just married, and they're in living in Bristol, and I fo- followed them, uh, their lives and their fantasies and their ambitions and so on, and I followed them through until she finished the film by giving birth and I was president of that birth.
0: Of course, you made the award-winning film The General John, the superb true crime drama about Dublin gangster Martin Cahill, and the man who played Martin Cahill was, of course, the great Brendan Gleeson, who's on the line now. Brendan Gleeson, thanks so much for joining us, and we've got John here on the line as well, Brendan.
3: Great. Hiya, John. How are you? <laughs>
10: But it's not very good to hear your
3: voice. Yeah, and you, as always. No, I just, I just wanted to uh, pay tribute to um, what you've done for myself as a person and as an actor, and to the country as a, as a, an artist over the last fifty years. Um, just the wisdom and the, the heart and soul that you've. Um, conveyed and, and, and it's been such an education for people here like the, the entire film industry really owes you a debt um, but also just the pieces of art that you have left behind that were made here um, that will always always live um, it has certainly made a massive difference to, to my life as you know so I just wanted to pay tribute to you and say bon voyage um, we're going to miss you terribly but hopefully maybe I might get to see you in sorry before too long. Thank you
0: Thank you, Brendan. Brendan that means a lot. And Brenda, can I ask you then about? I suppose how important was it for you, Brendan? Do you think in your career to work with John on the general?
3: Uh, it was. It was transformative in the sense that uh, you know the amount I learned on that set stayed is still with me. Um, it was the, the difference between somebody who was doing his best at it and then somebody who understood what was required in terms of uh, digging deep into your own um, psyche and your own um, personality and your own sort of soul somewhere. Um, I remember having a chat with John and I I did a camera test with him and he said, yeah, that was a very good impression, but uh, you're going to have to go deeper than that. And after that, uh, um, it was when I started getting nightmares at night that I realized that I was starting to delve somewhere that, that hurt and that was required. And on set then, uh, there was a particular incident that always um, struck me. We were, I was waiting outside, uh, casing a joint or whatever the the expression is. Um, And I felt very exposed because this was a character who kept his face hidden. And um, John brought me around to the back. Monitors had just come in to where you could see Mm. um, the relay from the camera. And there was a jagged edge of a shadow that went across the window of the car that I was looking through um, that masked my face apart from the eye looking out to it. So even though my hand wasn't covering my face, the camera uh, had been set up by Seamus Deasy with John's direction, whereby I was actually looking through a shadow, literally. Mm-hmm. And so the narrative in the camera, um, I began to understand it in a way that was extraordinarily sort of uh, revealing to me. And the the... the the relationship between the actor and the camera in in telling the story and how the actor doesn't need to do it if the camera is doing it for him and John tended to work with one camera so there was always a very very strong and uh, narrative point of view in the camera and so all of these things just were it was a total education um and it was thrilling because it was collaborative and mentoring and informative and was ex- was extraordinarily fearless as well in the way that he would go for things in one shot and trust his actors to do it. Um, it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. We finished up on top of a mountain in, in Wicklow and nobody wanted to come down. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he gave of himself in a way that was absolutely extraordinary. And there's always been such love and soul in his work. I just think he's, he's an absolutely remarkable man and has made a massive difference to my life in every way that I can think of. The
10: truth is and I, that Brendan was a. Brendan was absolutely highly intelligent and, and absolutely learned all the, the tricks in a few moments. And I, I just pointed him in, in the direction I wanted to go. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I was, I was a bit of a sponge, all right. I couldn't get enough of it.
0: <laughs> the hugely talented John Borman, as he prepared to leave his Wicklow home. Well that's it for today. The series producer is Cora Ennis. Today's programme was produced by Kieran O'Byrne. We'll leave you with a bit of Phil Coulter as he celebrated his 80th birthday.
11: That relationship I had with Luke Kelly was very, very special. Very, very special. If you look at my catalogue, two of the songs that are most dear to my heart would be The Town I Love So Well and Scorn Not His Simplicity. And it's, there's no coincidence that, that it was Luke Kelly's version of those that that, that would still be the definitive version. No coincidence that it was his voice that was in my head as I was writing those songs. The, the background to that of that would have been that Luke was continually badgering me to write songs that would go a little further than Puppet on a Stringer, congratulations, uh, songs that, that have, you know, some substance. And well, I was in Derry on the weekend that Internment was introduced and like everyone else in Derry, we felt it had been, the city had been violated. So as a kind of knee-jerk reaction, I wrote an anti-internment song called Free the People. Kelly, I knew I knew Luke would be all over it. I knew he would love it. And we recorded within a few weeks. The Dubliners had a big hit with it. But I knew there's there's another song of a bit more substance to be written about this whole situation. And that took two years. And I knew that if Kelly thought that, that this song didn't cut it he would, he would have stopped me and said oh, for God's sake stop that you know he, he would certainly have been able to tell me if he thought it was crap so I didn't want to see I didn't want to see him yawning or scratching himself I just no I just kept my eyes closed and I delivered the song finished it with a, the with a last uh, I can only pray for a bright brand new day in the town I love so well Bloom. played the last chord opened my eyes and looked across at Kelly in the other bed and there were tears in his eyes that right there was-
2: in my memory, I will always see the town that I have loved so well. Where our school played ball by the gas yard wall, and we laughed.
3: Smoke and smell. Going home in the rain,
2: running up the dark lane, past the jail and down behind the fountain. Those were happy days in so many. Town I loved so
6: well. Luke Kelly singing the town that I loved so well, from Sunday with
10: Miriam.